Hello and welcome to the Language of Life Nonviolent Communication Podcast. My name is Nate Guadani, and today I have a special guest. Her name is Sarah Russell, and she is the host of the Mud Water Podcast, and uh, she's also a radical life coach. And we met when I was in Lee Holden's Qigong teacher training back in like 2018, 2019 in Santa Cruz, and we really hit it off. And um, I was really fascinated by the... Um, the relationship anarchy and the, the the coaching work and the the stuff that you were into. And since then, we've kind of reconnected. I would see your podcast and the things you're putting out uh, on the Mudwater blog and on their podcast. I started to drink some of the Mudwater and, uh, and I was like, hey, there's Sarah. Oh my gosh. And uh, so I said, I need to get you on the podcast. I'd love to talk with you and uh, find out more what you're doing and um, share all the amazing things that you have to offer with our listeners. So thanks so much for coming on today. I'm so glad I'm on your podcast. It's so fun to talk to you again. Yeah. So let's pick up where we left off and um, also tell me a little bit about uh, the Mud Water podcast. Like, what do you do there? You guys have a really cool thing going on. I love the vibe and the the intentionality. It really seems to go beyond just like you know, mushroom drinks to, as an alternative to coffee, but there's really a whole philosophy. There's, there seems to be a, a thread of self-discovery and personal growth. And I suppose that probably resonated with you as a life coach. Um, what did draw you into the Mudwater podcast and that whole environment? I mean, I think you probably know me well enough to know that I couldn't work for a brand that I didn't believe in. So this isn't just like getting into the corporate world for the paycheck, right? One of the things I really love about Mudwater is they have this whole creating healthy minds through healthy habits, and they really walk the talk. And so they're offering breath work. They offer their employees every Friday, every other Friday off. They support microdosing at work. They have this very alternative subculture lifestyle that really resonates with the the alt subculture person that I am. And Mudwater gave me a platform to talk about all of these radical ideas that could actually help people with mental health struggles, with um, relationship struggles. And I've been so pleased because it's such a collaborative environment at MUD Mm. and they're so um, early adopters about new Mm. philosophies that could potentially be helping people create healthy minds through healthy habits. Wow. Yeah. And uh, how does that tie into your coaching work? Like what are some of the parallels or the overlaps there? That's a really good question because one of the things I'm noticing is in the one-to-one coaching, often when I'm speaking to clients, there will be some kind of similar cosmic consciousness that's going on. People will be struggling with very similar things at similar times. And if multiple clients are bringing up similar issues over and over again, I go, oh, it's time to create a podcast about this. Lots of people are struggling with this. And then on the flip side, if I create a podcast about something, usually something I'm curious about, something I want to dive deeper into or like have a positive obsession with, I release that podcast and then people go, that's interesting. That sounds yummy. I would like another bite of that. Can I schedule a call with you? So the two very much feed each other. Mm. What's an example of something recent that's really stood out to you that was somewhat in that zetgeist that was in the collective consciousness and in your personal sessions? One of the things I'm noticing is what happens when we are feeling out of control with our external environment, and we know that the only thing we can actually control is some version of our internal environment, right? Like we're still going to have a response. We're still going to have our emotional reaction to something, but being able Mm -hmm. to choose what our response is despite the chaos that's going on in the world. And so when there's this 
hopelessness that's happening, when there's this sense of cynicism or nihilism that's going on, this idea of how can we take one small step to creating some kind of compassionate comfort or change for ourselves. And so, um, you know, this is going on with climate catastrophe, this idea Ooh. of, um, I was just talking to somebody where, especially those of us that were growing up in the 80s and the 90s, this idea that if we turned off the tap water and we put in an Oof. LED light bulb that we were going to save the polar bears. Great. And then that's not the reality because we actually have corporations who are polluting the environment. We've got celebrities taking their private jets all of the time. And so this idea of like how much can we do as individuals can be really debilitating. And yet we can still move through the world in alignment with our values. And what are those values? And how can we keep showing up in this precious vessel on this precious planet in a way that we're actually in right relation with Mama Gaia? And so I talk about like, you know, I, I'll talk about that on an individual level with somebody. What can you do? And then on the podcast, I'll go, okay, you're noticing that you're in this nihilistic mood all of the time. Is there a different mood that you want to play with that's not wallpapering over the catastrophe that's going on in the world, but could still help you actually move in, in right relation with your people, yourself, the planet? Mm. Yeah. So kind of connecting the the broader values uh, with the internal actions and uh, tracing that path and kind of helping people connect those dots and come away with a feeling that they can make actions in alignment with their values, even despite the chaos and all the stuff that they're witnessing around them. Right. And there's something about not just going, okay, I can't handle the the big crisis, so I'm going to handle the little crisis that's going on in my life. But there's like this mm. additional step that feels really important to me where if I'm thinking about revolution, if I'm thinking about collective liberation, if I'm thinking about how to care for myself and my people and the world around me, how much of that change is going to happen in my lifetime? Like, mm, we'll see how much happens mm. in my lifetime. But if I can lay the foundation for the next generation who can build part of the structure for the next generation, who can then keep building, this is like for our great-grandchildren's great-grandchildren, seven right. generations forward. And so noting, noticing that the small change we're making for ourselves also can have this ripple effect that is building a different culture about what else could be possible for future generations. Right. There's almost like a funny uh, observation that I don't know if somebody said this or it just popped in my head one day, but it's, it's almost like each generation uh, solves the previous generation's problems mm. and in doing so causes the next generation's problems. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like yeah. this climate crisis is like the result of, of our parents' generation solving transportation, you know, being able to drive and to fly and to create and to industrialize and produce. And then, in doing so they've caused all these problems and now we've unleashed ai and we've unleashed you know <laughs> like all these other solutions which are now going to be total catastrophe <laughs> for the next generation and on it goes so as we talk about these um macro and micro changes and the choices and the actions and abilities that we have to make change uh, i'm really curious about some of the overlaps that we have in in our work um what this podcast is really based on is nonviolent communication through Rosenberg's work, 
And when I was talking to you, you told me that there's a common theme and origin story to the cooperative communication that you also employ in your coaching work. So would you be able to tie these together, give us a little history lesson and um, give us some context for all of this? I'd be happy to talk about this because our common lineage comes from Eric Byrne and Eric Byrne is one of my favorite authors of a book called Games People Play. And Eric Byrne is known for transactional analysis. And we know nonviolent communication comes from Marshall Rosenberg and cooperative communication comes from Claude Steiner. And the way I heard this kind of myth of Eric Byrne and the, the passing on of his wisdom told is there was this emerging transactional community in San Francisco and Marshall Rosenberg and Claude Steiner were sitting on a couch with Eric Byrne while they were learning all of his transactional analysis. And then they turned it into their divergent communication styles, their way of mm. conflict. Mm. Wow. So tell us more about transactional analysis in a nutshell. So what's, we believe that at the root of change, at the root of getting to conflict is the transaction. And so it's really easy to speak in generalities, this idea that we have a sweeping story that we're telling about what's going on. Hmm. But that's not always going to get us to holding all of the complexities and contradictions and specificities of truth in a particular context. And so being able to get to a particular transaction is actually where we can enact change. So we're really looking for a specific context when we're moving hmm. through conflict. Mm. I love that. That is so key to nonviolent communication, right? Like that fourth stage of the request. Uh, and that's like the most common, I'd say, correction that I can offer when people are working through this and they get to the request part and they say, okay, um, I'd like you to be nicer. <laughs> you know, I'd like you to be more respectful. Could you treat me with more compassion? And it's too broad. It's too vague. There isn't an actual transaction there. Like, hey, when you um, go to the grocery store, can you text me and ask me if you'd like me to pick up something for you? Or when you get yourself a coffee, could you give me one too? You know, something like that is a very clear transaction, right? Is that kind of what you're talking about? That is exactly what I'm talking about. And even this idea of, I want you to be nice to me. Well, I thought I was being nice to you because I was being nice to you in the way I like people being nice to me, but that's not actually the way that you receive people being nice to you. So we have to mm. understand what we even mean by the word nice when we're making a request, which means we got to get specific. Mm. Yeah. And so this root of the transactional um, nature of interaction, that there's a transaction, there's a giving and a receiving, and that the meaning of the giving and the receiving could be very different for each person. Um, so it, I suppose a lot of definitions are important too. And that's another part of the, um, the NVC work that has been so enlightening for me is the lists of feelings, the lists of needs, right? Those tools. Um, yeah. Cause then you can kind of look through the list and you can say, Oh, like I have a need for connection. Um, and the list of feelings. And there's a lot of faux feelings or fake feelings like uh, abandoned, like is I feel abandoned. It's not really a feeling, but more a thought that somebody has done something to you. They have left you behind, but the feeling might be sad or it might be angry. So the feelings could actually be very different from that, um, that analysis of, of I've been abandoned. And so just having more precision, having those tools to, um, 
to have a like a shared understanding, almost like a, a set of rules. Like if we're going to play a game, we have to follow the same rules. And if we're going to define terms and if we're going to define values, it almost seems critical that we have a shared definition of what those are. This idea that you bring up around feelings mm. and I think you referred to them as faux feelings. We refer to them as story-free feelings. And so we have our story-free feelings, and then we have our feelings that are full of story in them. And so abandon is one of those story words, this idea that you did something to me. And that idea of you did something to me is a very self-centric story. I'm putting myself at the center of the action. So it's this idea, are, are my behaviors about me? Yeah. Are your behaviors about me? Probably not. Your behaviors are also probably about you. I'm putting myself at the center of the action. You're probably also putting yourself at the center of the action. So when we use a word like abandoned, that's got a story of you did something to me in it. And so in cooperative communication, we want to get to story-free feelings first before we get to the story. And so we're going to go, okay, what was wrapped up in feeling abandoned? I felt lonely. I felt confused. I felt sad. I felt shocked. I felt resentful. There can be all of these story-free feelings that you made me feel, but that you weren't necessarily doing to me in the same way that abandoned has this really heavy story of what you were doing, what your intentions were in that moment. We're already telling a story about why you did it when we're saying mm. I feel abandoned. Mm. Interesting. So, so you would dissect this in a way of, of placing like our locus, maybe like almost like the locus of control. You're saying like the centric, where the center of the story is, uh, in the way that I'm telling it, am I taking responsibility for my perspective, for my feelings, or am I, um, giving that other person the responsibility for my feeling like you did this to me? Um, I'm curious about the connection between feelings. Like you said, you made me feel this way. Um, and I'm curious because in NBC, they talk about feelings as always being rooted in our needs. So it would be like, I felt hurt because I'm needing connection or I'm needing support. That person may have stimulated that feeling, but the feeling comes from the need. Um, and so I'm curious because you had mentioned that there's some divergence between these two systems. I'm curious what those are. Am I getting close to one of them here or what would you, you say are, are the main things? You are nailing it. Like okay. you just got right to the heart of what the difference is between nonviolent communication and cooperative communication. Mm. So because we have this common lineage with Eric Byrne, we both have observable facts and feelings. And yes. those things are facts, right? Observable facts are facts. Our feelings are facts. We feel the way we feel. And then nonviolent communication has needs. We need what we need. Requests, we want what we want. So those aren't arguable. Those are all facts. Observable facts, anything a camera would pick up. And then all of the ways that we feel, it's not arguable how we're feeling. We're not going to argue any of those points. But what cooperative communication does is it adds an additional layer of complexity into the middle. So nonviolent communication is really great if you want to feel seen, heard, and understood without being interrupted, if you don't want your experience being argued with. Cooperative communication allows a moment where something actually can become nuanced in a way where we're going, well, this is what's true and this is what's not true for me about that. So we do observable facts at this particular moment in time. 
this particular thing happened, a camera would have been able to pick that up. We moved to feelings. That made me feel angry, hurt, sad, disconnected, something like that. Then after that, we go, I have a story about why you did that. Would you like to hear my story about why I think you did that? And this is a deviation from cultural norms, right? Because we have really been culturally trained to do I stories. I felt this way to take all of this individual responsibility and cooperative communication actually disrupts that. And it tells a you story. I think you did this. And we put the story directly on the other person. And again, the story we're putting on the other person is ideally an other centric story. If I were you, I imagine the reason I would have done this is because if I were putting myself in your shoes, I imagine this is what was motivating your behavior in that particular moment. And then the other person actually has a chance to respond with what's true, what's not true, and what's also true for them. Wow, interesting. So you're asking, so it seems like the the critical component here, the skill that would be built through this process would be really empathy to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes to the point where you can articulate or take a guess at what their motivations or their story would be. Um, And I wonder though, it seems very risky that it would be heard as a criticism or, or how, how likely is it that we're going to get that story right? Or in a way that um, do both parties need to kind of be aware that this is happening or even if that other person isn't aware, can you say, here's what I think the reason is you did that to me. And then are you kind of checking in and, and, and getting confirmation? What would that look like exactly? So one of the important first steps, if we're going to clear our story with somebody else, is that we mm-hmm. fought as much of our internalized oppression as possible. And what I mean by that is we're taking as much shame and blame out of the story as possible. This idea that mm-hmm. someone's bad, someone's wrong. Um, that there's a villain in the story and there's a hero. So we're getting out of this dualistic, very binary way of thinking where this was wrong for me, which means you're wrong. I feel bad, which means you're bad. And we're like getting into this non-dualistic, right for me, wrong for you, wrong for me, right for you kind of nuance. So we want to make sure that we're taking all of the internalized oppression out of it first. And that's like a a big thing that I could unpack when I'm teaching people how to recognize they're experiencing internalized oppression, how to know they're shaming and blaming somebody else. So we're taking all of that out first before we share the story. One of the reasons why we start with the observable facts and feelings is so we can actually have the other person locate themselves in a moment in time where they go, okay, I know what you're talking about. And now I know how you're feeling. And the fact that I know how you're feeling is already going to drop me into this more connected context, maybe, I mean, telling somebody else that they made us feel bad might already trigger them. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how much this is happening in nonviolent communication. I imagine that it is. But in cooperative communication, if somebody gets activated in that way, we pause. Yeah. We slow down. If we go, hearing how I felt activated you, we take a break. If mm-hmm. hearing the story that I'm telling about you activated you, we pause. We're not blazing through with a sense of urgency because mm-hmm. if there's enough time, then we can actually move through the relationship in a way where we can come to some kind of resolution or agreement, even if that's we need to take more space. If we are blazing through and there is no time, there are very few sustainable, satisfying solutions that we're going to be able to come to. So we're slowing it all way down. Mm. I think that is a very important shared 
value between these two systems here and and perhaps any kind of intervention or conflict resolution or communication system is we're kind of agreeing to the rules like we are agreeing to the context of the conversation as much as the contents of the conversation and something you said also resonates with the the study of mvc that the we want to remove the enemy image that as soon as we've decided that you're my enemy or that you're bad or there's any moralistic um, judgment about that person, we have, we're basically now doomed to enact some form of violence or violence will seem reasonable or even justifiable. Um, so in terms of in that moment of the conversation where you say, okay, here's the observable facts. Um, I was walking to my car and I saw you bump your car into mine and it scratched it. And I'm pissed. I'm furious. I am livid. And so now the next step would be, I'm going to try to embody this other person's point of view and say, so I'm guessing that you were not paying attention and you hit my car and um, and now do I try to get confirmation of that observable fact before we go on or, or do we, do I keep going through past that at this point? So the observable facts we're not going to argue about, right? Like your mm. car bumped my car. Like, can we agree that that's what happened? Yeah. Okay. This idea, like the story would come in and I think you weren't paying attention and um, I'll get into this because there's a power piece that's really critical in all of this. So mm. I'm going to tell a little bit of a story that will have a little bit of a power piece in it, right? Yeah. Um, let's say that you have the fancier, more expensive car and the person that bumped into your car actually has a car that's less expensive or is a little bit older in some way. And mm -hmm. that person bumped into you. I have a story that you bumped into my car. You were going to pretend like it didn't happen. Um, I'm worried that you don't actually have the funds to take care of the damage or you're worried that it's going to ding your record in some way. And so now you're just going to try to get out of this situation and not actually be accountable for the fact that you just hit my car. Mm. Got it. So, so you have to be aware of that whole story running through your head in that moment is, is that, um, and, and, and then be able to articulate it to that person and be able to, to, um, to kind of take their point of view. And so then that person might then say, oh, because even if it's true, I wonder if people are honest or self-aware enough to also see that for themselves or say, what are you talking about? You, uh, you know, you rich know-it-all, you think you can just, you own the world and everybody should just bow before you. Uh, what do you do in that case if there's a disagreement about that story? So two things. One, within cooperative communication, cooperation actually implies that we have both opted in to some kind of commitment to each other already. And so mm. I don't actually know, like there would be some kind of hybrid if we were doing it with a stranger who hadn't opted in to okay. the lengthy intimate, emotional, vulnerable process that we would use with cooperative communication. So that, that might actually like warrant a slightly different, like a hybrid model of communication in that particular mm. instance. So yeah. somebody's going, I am here and I am committed to going through this slow, long, 
potentially grueling process with you because I actually care enough about this relationship dynamic that I'm willing to do this work. With a stranger in the parking lot, you might not actually be willing to do that level of work because what we know about cooperation is that it's really intimate and it is not efficient. And what we know about hierarchy is it's incredibly efficient, but it's not very intimate. So in that particular moment, how much efficiency versus how much intimacy are we willing to exchange with each other? Mm. So you kind of have to, you have to lean one way or the other. And so again, there can be a hybrid. You can do some kind like you can delegate either hierarchy or cooperation, depending on the context. So I will tend to delegate cooperation to strangers who haven't opted into cooperation with me Mm. until hierarchy is necessary. Mm. What would that look like in this case where somebody has bumped my car and I'm pissed and where do I go from here now that I've laid out kind of my perception of why they did it or what, what was going on in them? I mean, if I was doing this with a complete stranger, mm-hmm. number one, I'm already going to be doing um, like transactional analysis, right? Mm. How much did they bump my car? Is it going to be worth the fight I'm potentially going to get into, like the damage versus the fight? So I'm already weighing all of these differentiating factors, right? Is it worth mm. it for me to even get into a conversation with this person? Yeah. Let's say I've done the transactional analysis. I go, okay, yeah, it's worth it to get into this conversation. I'm probably going to come in with a little bit of charm. Like, I'm going to be like, hey, I don't know if you noticed. You bumped my car. I'm guessing you didn't notice that you just bumped my car, but I noticed. Can we talk about it? So I'm extending like consent, like, hey, are you willing to have a conversation with me? I'm extending the benefit of the doubt. Hey, maybe you didn't notice that this just happened. So I'm already kind of like deviating from this more formula that we would use in a more intimate, committed, connected relationship, right? Mm -hmm. But let's say that person was like, you know, you're right. So, so what we do is after we've given the story to the other person, and I have an example of like a, a housemate situation that I can tell you about too. Yeah. Um, but basically the other person would go through and say, what's true, what's not true. And what's also true. Um, what's true is I bumped your car and I was totally hoping that you wouldn't notice and that I was just going to get away with it. What's not true is that I don't have the money. I have the money. I just don't want to pay it. I don't even think I bumped your car that hard. So I didn't super want to get into a conflict with a perfect stranger. I'm already late to go pick up my kid. What's Mm. also true is like, you didn't include the fact that you were parked over the line and I was already like trying to shimmy into the spot and like, it was hard for me to get in and out. So I don't know how much personal responsibility I want to take for this exclusively. Mm. Mm. Got it. So that kind of response of here's what's true, here's what isn't true and here's what's also true would be the response to what that person, when that person um, takes a guess at what's happening in their world. And that's their chance to confirm, to reject, or to modify whatever they just said. And what's really critical is that what's true step. So often, Mm -hmm. again, like if we were doing this in a more intimate context, typically when somebody is sharing their story with us, they're sharing some kind of vulnerability. They're sharing some kind of tenderness. And so when the person's responding with what's true to that story, we actually want to get to that tenderness, that vulnerability. And we call it um, validating the kernel of truth, where like, Mm. even if you're having a really hard time finding anything true with the other person's story, it's this move of validation first. Because if somebody comes to you and they go, I have this story about why you're doing what you're doing, and it's Mm. causing me to feel these things. And the other person, let's say like it's in a committed cooperative relationship already, right? What do we tend to do? 
you've got it all wrong. Of mm. course, I didn't mean to do that to you. Of course, I care about you. Of course, all of your fears are unfounded. How could you even think that about me? We invalidate, invalidate, invalidate. Mm. And what that does mm. is it roots the fear deeper into that person's body. And they go, I'm feeling the way I'm feeling for some reason. Now you're making me feel like I'm crazy or I'm stupid or I'm bad or like like all of these all of this internalized oppression can flood in where you're like I'm feeling this for some reason you're completely denying my experience at this moment but I'm feeling this way for a reason and now I can't trust you because you're not actually giving me the information I need to know why I'm feeling this way. Mm. So validating what's true becomes critically important in this moment mm. so that the other person can actually feel like you're seeing, hearing and understanding them and even if you're like none of your story is true. If that's like what you're thinking, then you go, I imagine the way that you got to that story is through this. So you're still like, it's this move of trying to like, I have my story. You have your story. We're trying to create this big picture story where we're both understanding each other's behavior mm. and motivations. Mm. Yeah. So it seems like the cooperative communication really um, is most effective because it's nuanced and because there are these implicit and, and even explicit agreements of how we're going to relate to each other. This really shines in these intimate connections, roommates, um, you know, siblings, family, and because these are the relationships we care the most about and those that we interact with the most. I imagine this is incredibly useful and quite, um, we'll need to use this quite frequently. So yeah, let's go over an example. Let's say you said there was a, like a housemate situation. What would that look like in practicality? Sure. Um, I want to circle back around to something you said that I think is really important in this divergence between nonviolent communication and cooperative communication. And then I'd love to get into that example. Mm -hmm. So with nonviolent communication, we have these four steps, right? Facts, feelings, needs, and requests. Mm -hmm. That is a really great way of communicating with somebody if you don't want your story argued with and if there is relatively equal power and you don't need to come to a particular resolution because my understanding of NVC is that after somebody shares, you can say yes or no to their request, but there's this thank you. Like somebody shares and you say thank you, right? Is that part of the culture? Am I getting that mm. right? Um that might be. I I haven't seen that as an imperative. I think okay. what there is is a, a a reflection where you can basically reflect or mirror back where you say, okay, let me make sure I'm getting this you saw this, you're feeling this, you're needing this, you're asking this. And there is that recognition, but I don't know if there's a thank you in terms of like, I now want to accept this or I'm right. happy no. to hear it. Right. Yeah. So it's not necessarily an acceptance. And this is this is what I'm talking yeah. about with nonviolent communication. You're sharing the information, the other person receives the information. And sometimes that's where it ends. Like I know there are different iterations where you can go beyond that. Um, but nonviolent communication has this very like neat and tidy, we do this, mm. then we do this, then we do this, then we do this. And then it's done, which works really great if there's not a huge power differential, which mm. works really great if you don't have to negotiate um, differences in power or differences in stories or differences in wants and needs. And so it it works really great um, if you don't need to get to the underlying cause of where the conflict came from. And something that cooperative communication is doing is it's analyzing the power in a transaction. Who has what power in what context? Because if, if nonviolent communication is equalizing our shares, 
I have my observable facts, feelings, needs, and requests. You have your facts, feelings, needs, and requests. There's an equalization that's happening. And if somebody in that transaction has a different amount of power than somebody else, people can get really upset if we're making our shares equal. And I can get into examples about what that would look like. But like, especially if we're talking around systemic oppression, if somebody's from a marginalized group in some way, um, if somebody has less resources, if somebody's going one down in transactions in some way, having an equal process where people are sharing as if their stories are equal, um, cooperative communication is disrupting this idea that our experiences are equal in some way. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fascinating because I, I know that Rosenberg worked a lot with like the race, you know, integration of racial um, integration of schools in Detroit in the 60s. Um, you know, he's worked with uh, Israelis and Palestinians, and there is a, a lot of social um, activism kind of built in with NVC. And so I, I imagine that there, um, that there would be a lot of ways to come into uh, cooperation and communication, even with power differentials. And I suppose when you say that our, um, we're trying to get to a place of equality, my understanding of MVC is that the equality is the, 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 the needs, the values. We all value safety. We all value connection. We all value support. Um, and, and so ultimately, that is the shared resource. That is what we all um, value and need. And, and if we can get to the point of empathizing with the other party to say, hey, you're angry because you're needing support, it's very hard to argue with that. And um, to, no matter what status or um, you know power we hold, uh, and, but I'm curious about that. And I want to, yeah, I definitely want to hear some examples of, of um, yeah, where where might that show up uh, in, in a situation? Sure. And I think that word that you use, support, is a, a really good thing to dive into. So this idea of mm. who needs what kind of support. So mm. if somebody is financially dependent on somebody else, if somebody doesn't have stable housing, if somebody doesn't have a stable job, if somebody is dealing with microaggressions all day in, all day out, the level of support and the resourcing they would need. Um, Skills for Change, which is the the methodology, right? We have Claude Steiner, who was one of the original founders of the Radical Therapy Collective. Then the Radical Therapy Collective created this off-branch. Julia Kelleher created Skills for Change, which is the model that I'm a part of. We're Mm -hmm. very much fighting for the underdog in our transactions. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking to see, do you actually need an equal amount of support or does one person actually need more support? And I'll use myself as an example in this. So there was somebody that I was relating with who had a tremendous amount of structural power, um, Mm. owned their house, owned their car, was self-employed in a business that was incredibly successful, um, is a cis-het man, right? I'm coming in. I didn't own my home. I didn't own my car. I'm a queer, gender non-conforming femme. And... So systemically, the differences in our power, um, especially like, let's say we're going out to dinner, this idea that we would split a meal 50-50 despite the differences in resources. It's like, well, that would actually be something I'd want to negotiate. And yet, in our transactions with each other, at that particular moment in time, I have a lot more structural and systemic power now. At that particular moment in time, most of my power was coming from my personal 
power and like, like personality and transactional power. I'm highly articulate. I think very quickly. Mm -hmm. I'm can be very emotional. I can be very compelling. And so I was wielding my personal and transactional power like a hammer in every mm -hmm. transaction. And I was winning most transactions, despite the fact that this person had all of the systemic power that I didn't have at the time. And so it actually, like, if you're looking at it on paper, I looked more marginalized in that particular transaction. But if we're looking at all of the power, that other person was losing transaction after transaction. I was getting what I wanted over and over again because I knew how to wield my personal power so effectively. And so in cooperative communication, like you see like the level of complexity we're adding to all of this because we're going, okay, in order to take care of everybody in this transaction, we need to be really clear about how power is at play. Right. That's very interesting. So when you say winning a transaction, what do you mean by that? So let's say like just a like non-activating example. Um, they want to go to Thai food. I want to go to sushi. It takes them a while to arrive at the fact that they want Thai food. Like their preference isn't as strong. I'm sure that I want to go get sushi. And I'm like, okay, but there's a sushi restaurant in town. It has all of these great reviews. By the way, it's happy hour right now. I'm moving fast. I'm giving all these like really great examples. And we go to sushi and the other person's like, well, I didn't even have time to think about whether or not I preferred Thai or sushi, but like your argument's really compelling. So I guess we'll go get sushi. Like hmm. this ability to get my 100% in the moment without, you know, actually negotiating our 100%. This is what you want. This is what I want. Now we're going to negotiate, see if we can come up with something that's mutually satisfying for both of us. I'm just going, here's how I get what I want. Mm, right. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of interesting because it makes me think of this concept that Rosenberg talks about where he says, ultimately, the, the outcome of MVC is that you never do something out of duty, guilt, or obligation, and you never want somebody else to do something for you out of that energy. And when you make a request, you only want that person to conform to your request if they can do so willingly from the heart. Otherwise, it comes at a great cost. And so that's interesting to think of it in terms of a transaction, not that there could be that whole concept of a win and a loss, I think somewhat is a different, um, I don't see how that would fit into is, so is there a win-win also, or is there a, is there a way to have a transaction that isn't a win or a loss where somebody is saying, okay, fine, I'll get tie or then later say, yeah, I did what you wanted and I didn't like it. So now I'm, bl I'm blaming you. Like, how do we get out of that win-lose um, outcome with a transactional point of view? Sure. So what you're talking about, I believe, is hearkening back to Eric Byrne again and his idea of rescue, where rescue mm. is doing more than your share or more than you want. And there's some mm. idea of there's like strings attached or you're withholding information that the other person would need to know in order to have com informed consent to opt in to whatever the agreement was. Mm. So we're trying in cooperative communication. Again, this is an ideal that we're aiming towards. And again, we have to be in a cooperative contract with somebody. And I can talk mm. about what that is as well. Yeah. But one of the things we're doing in cooperation is we're agreeing to no rescues. I'm not going to do more than my share or more than I want. You're not yeah. going to do more than your share or more than you want. I'm mm -hmm. going to be clear about what I want. You're going to be clear about what you want. And that means I never, I don't never do anything I don't want to do. It just means I'm being really transparent. Like, okay, I'm going to do this because 
I actually want you to have ease in your day. And that is part of my 100%. And even though I really want this other thing, I don't want to create more conflict for you. So part of my 100% is creating ease in our transaction. So sure, we can do what you want to do. And this idea of a win-lose, again, the level of complexity in cooperative communication, right? We have win-wins, we have win-loses, we have lose-loses, and we have lowest common denominators. And if a win-win is available, of course, we're going to go for that. And we're also killing some of the idealism that a win-win is always available. And so then we have all these other options, which include a win-lose, which means, okay, it's Monday night. I won sushi tonight. Tuesday, you get to win tie because we're going to trade off win-loses. Or, you know, what's really interesting is sometimes even um, a lose-lose becomes more satisfying than a lowest common denominator solution. And most of the time, culturally, we're defaulting to lowest common denominator. Okay, this is what I want. This is what you want. Here's all the overlap of what I want and what you want. Now we're each getting like a little bit of what we want, but we're not getting the important things and what we want. We're not getting the big things that we have differences on. And then we walk away from that lowest common denominator going, you got what you wanted and I didn't get what I want. And we're both feeling that way. So sometimes if we like both take a lose in that moment, we can walk away with more satisfaction and connection. Okay. I don't want Thai. I don't want sushi. You know what we could get though? Mexican. Mexican would be great where we actually neither one of us got what we wanted in that moment. But we were able to come up with something where like neither one of us felt like the other one was walking away with the win. I guess my fear of, um, getting too focused on the transaction is what about when it's not really about the restaurant? What if it's not really about Thai food or sushi, but it's really about, you're not, I don't think you're considering my needs or, um, you know, why do we always have to do it your way? Right. What, what if it, the dynamic, what if we're solving the wrong problem? Like how do we make sure that we come away maybe with a win-win, but we're both kind of like (laughs) feeling less connected at the end. I'm so glad you asked this question and I'll give a different example for this one, because this is why in cooperative communication, we think stories are a critical piece if we're actually going to move through to satisfying resolution in a connected, committed relationship, right? Whatever that means. So I had a housemate and she is an older woman and I have a culture where I extend respect to elders automatically. At least that's my story about how I show up in the world. And yet her and I were continually having conflict with each other because I come from a culture where I deeply value privacy and she comes from a culture where she deeply values sharing. So when I would go out with my people, when I would get home, she'd go, who were you with? Did you go get dinner? Where did you go? What did you eat? You went to the movies? Who was at the movies with you? What movie did you see? And I'm (laughs) withdrawing, right? And I'm going, I just had an interaction with these people. I want to keep my interaction with these people private. I would rather Mm -hmm. have private experiences with you. I like to opt into sharing rather than having to opt out of sharing. And Mm -hmm. so we were having this conflict over privacy culture versus sharing culture. If she had just told me what she needed and made a request... I need to know when you're coming and going because not knowing when you're going to be home, not knowing when you're going to be out, not knowing what time you're going to, like if you're coming in late, that's disruptive to my life and my lifestyle. So I need to know your schedule more. Then I can go, okay, well, I'm willing to tell you certain parts of my schedule, but I'm not willing to tell you all all the parts of the schedule. 
without the story underneath, we're not actually getting to the root underlying cause of what the conflict is. So if she was to share her story with me, Sarah, I have a story that you don't want to be friends with me, that you're keeping me at arm's distance, that you're not letting me into your personal life and you don't want to get close to me. And I have a story that you don't actually like me very much and you don't respect me very much because you're keeping this information from me, despite the fact that we live together. And then if I was going to say what was true, I'd be like, what's true is I don't want to share personal information with, with you. What's true is I am keeping you at arm's length. What's not true is it's because I don't like you or because I don't respect you. What's also true, what you don't know about me, is I deeply value privacy. And I'm going to use the story that a friend told me at a wedding. She was like, you're like a cat. Like, people can't come up to you directly. They have to kind of like sidle up next to you and then like... You can wander over to them when you're oh, ready. Sure. And so like the what's also true is if you want to get close to me, the way to get close to me is not by asking me a lot of personal questions. It's by yeah. like parallel play. It's by being in the same room and letting me like have a move towards you because if you're doing all of the extending towards me, I'm trying to get away. But if you give me some space, I automatically am going to want to start extending towards you because I have space to move. And I actually need a lot of space in order to feel intimate and close with somebody. So the underlying request is actually for intimacy and connection, Mm -hmm. not to know my schedule. Yes. See, this is, I'm seeing now a lot of the parallels. I'm starting to bring these together because when you are talking about the story, the key points to the story, I'm hearing the needs and the values. And this is actually, I think, could be very helpful because one of the things when people first start learning NVC that's very difficult to articulate in a natural way, where it doesn't sound like you're talking from a formula or you're kind of robotic or you're umming and awing a lot, is to say something like, uh, in this situation, so let's say, I'm you. So you come home and your um, roommate is saying, where were you? Who were you with? What did you see? On and on and on. You might say, if this was an NBC intervention, you could say, "Uh, listen, uh, Sally, uh, when I come home, I've noticed, you know, last three times that I've come home, you've asked me many questions about who I'm with and what I'm doing, where where I've been, observation level. Uh, I'm feeling you know, a little uncomfortable and I'm feeling a little frustrated feeling level because I'm needing or I value, you know, privacy and I, and I value, um, you know, my independence. And my request is to, um, to, to let me just come in and and relax after the night. And, and if you'd like to talk about it, you could ask me the next morning about, and see if I'd be willing to, um, to talk about it. And so then, I guess this is also where it could be helpful to then try to put yourself in the other person's shoes because when somebody hears that, they either say, yes, okay, I accept that. Or if they say, no, it's only for one reason. They have another set of needs that's getting in the way. It would be a violation of their own needs to say yes to this. And so then they would have to do the MVC process on their own part. Hey, when, uh, when you come home, I feel so eager and so excited to talk to you, uh, because I really miss you. And I, I, I really value connection and communication and interaction. 
And I'd really love to know what you were doing and I'd love to have a conversation about it. And so this would be the ideal situation. Each party could explain the facts, explain their feelings, connect it to their needs and make a request. Um, but when there's a story, it somehow, I think, even though it's, I suppose, a bit fraught because it would be very easy to hear criticism or to hear blame. If somebody says a story, hey, I think that you're doing this and this. And they say, wait, what do you mean? No, I'm not. It would be without that contract. I think very that consciousness that we're having a a particular type of conversation here where we're abiding by these rules be very uh, likely to to hear criticism or to um, to trigger that. But on the other hand, if even one person is privy to these tools and able to then say, it sounds like your story is that you're really wanting connection with me and you're really wanting to know about it. And we ended up in the same place because we've both now figured out you have a need for space, freedom, um, autonomy, privacy, and they have a need for connection, community, conversation. And so it seems like we've kind of come to the same conclusion at the end of the day, but perhaps through slightly different means. So I completely agree with that. And I think one of the reasons that works in this particular example is because me and my housemate have relatively equal power in that dynamic. Mm. Like, let's say we both would have been able to move out if the living situation didn't work for us. We were contributing similar resources. Now, if we tweak that example, and let's say it's a stay-at-home partner and there's a partner that's going away for work every day, and that stay-at-home partner is responsible for, you know, the expectation is you're going to get dinner on the table at a certain time. They're taking care of all of the childcare. There's certain information from the person that's disappearing where they're like, I need to know what time you're home so I know when am I going to get help with childcare, when I'm going to, like, if the food's going to get cold on the table, whether or not we're throwing away resources because I made dinner and you weren't here for it. Um, also, I need to know your whereabouts for negotiations around how we're, we're doing the shared lifestyle together. If then the person who's leaving is like, I just value autonomy and I'm not actually going to share any of that information with you, but the person who's staying at home is dependent on that other person for, you know, paying rent or because they're the stay at home, they're not working, the other person is working. We would want to do some kind of analysis because in that particular moment, one person want, person wanting autonomy and the other person wanting more information, like privacy versus information, we would go, well, we don't actually agree that your needs are equal in this because somebody is actually having to go one down in these transactions in mm. order to relate with you. I guess my fear of framing it as a one up or one down is that to me, the goal is first to establish an empathic connection. And this is really the, 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 the heart of, I think, both of these systems is that once the empathic connection has been established, we have gotten to the point where we care about each other's needs. And I don't want you to do something. I don't want you to do what I'm asking if it comes at a sacrifice of your own needs. And that empathic connection is, is like the root of human trust and and at the root of any successful relationship and if we're coming at this as a technique to say you know what i don't really trust you and i have to fight for my rights and you have more power than me i don't have as much power as you and so i'm up i'm punching up and you're punching down and we haven't established that empathic connection and then we try to imply any skills or tools i just worry that that it's just going to end up being this never-ending fight but if we say can we establish the empathic connection? Can I get to the point where I really empathize with what it's like to be a stay-at-home parent and to have that feeling that 
I, I'm not in control of all the resources and I need you. I need you to, to, to help support certain needs of mine. And you need me to support certain needs of yours. And we both care about each other. And then as soon as that magic happens, the empathic connection happens, it unlocks this power of problem solving and creativity that then we can use to figure out the actions. So I completely agree with you that having some kind of compassionate connection with each other is necessary for cooperation. And in addition to that, we want to make sure, like at least within cooperative communication, that we're not maintaining neutrality around what those needs are. Like, again, my story, your story, big picture story. Okay, you're exhausted. You're answering questions from people all day long at work. Like before you come home and you start caretaking for people at home, you were just caretaking for people at work. You need some time to yourself where you're not checking in with somebody. Like making sure there's a common understanding. Like absolutely. Like getting to the point where I understand you. You understand me. We can reflect it back to each other. We can hold compassion for each other. Mm. And then when we get to the needs, recognizing that we're not trying to get to some kind of equality or neutrality with the requests that are being made. Because um, mm. so Beth Roy, who was one of the founders or one of the big members of the Radical Therapy Collective as well, um, co-created a book. Um, Mary Trujillo wrote a book called Recentering. And within that book, there's a quote that neutral structures recreate, reproduce status quo power dynamics. And so if we're getting to neutrality, then it's really hard to disrupt systemic power imbalances. And so in cooperative Mm. communication, we're also looking to go like, yes, compassion. Yes, understanding. But for instance, um, you know, I'm trying, I'm I'm intentionally, I haven't been bringing this up the whole pod, but here we are at the end and I'm going to bring up something contentious. Um, This is raging with the trans debate right now, Mm -hmm. right? This Mm -hmm. idea of everyone getting to say what they feel and be heard. Despite the fact that some of those things that are saying that people are saying that they want to be heard are incredibly harmful to members of the trans community, Um, put Mm -hmm. people's lives in danger, can be incredibly dehumanizing in some way. And so this idea of like, I just want to be able to say how I'm feeling. Like one of the things in skills for change is we actually take a side. We're not trying to stay neutral. We're going, actually, this person is experiencing lack of safety in their personal life and the way that they can move through the world because we're creating this platform where like everyone can say what they want because of free speech. And I'm not saying I'm against free speech, but I am saying this idea of like, if people were trying to navigate a conflict and this person is like, I don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. I don't have the resources that I need in order to move through the world that I want to. And you're actually saying that, like, you don't want me to have those resources. And because that's the way you feel and you're saying that's what you need, then I just have to give up what I need in that way. Like, th- I mean, I think this is one of the big distinctions is we do take a side and that side is with the underdog. And there's not always an underdog, like often very often in like our day-to-day interactions and the people we're engaging with, there's going to be fairly equal power dynamics. What gets tricky is when we're engaging where there is some kind of power differential and not wallpapering over that going like, yes, we're going to take care of every, like when people come into my mediations, I am taking care of everybody in the room, but not everyone's necessarily getting equal time and not everyone, you know, like not everyone is necessarily getting the same level of needs met. Yeah. So it sounds like in this conflict between trans 
people and those that are saying things that are incredibly hurtful and potentially dangerous to them, there is a tremendous lack of empathy and understanding between these two groups. And therefore, any kind of communication is very unlikely because they've painted each other as an enemy, perhaps. And so now, as soon as somebody has painted a trans person as the enemy, now it's justifiable to be violent to them. And this is at the root of this and perhaps many other uh, sources of these power dynamics where so much pain and suffering occurs. And so any, I would say, yes, I'd say any conversation where there isn't an empathic connection is doomed to fail. And, um, and perhaps there needs to be, like you said, some sort of arbitration or some sort of rule in place. However, it seems like then that would violate the intrinsic needs, like you said, of autonomy and freedom and freedom of speech. And then it kind of makes it even worse and worse and worse. And so the how do we then, without then painting the other person, say, okay, people who hate trans people are the enemy. Let's punish them. Now violence to them is justifiable and in fact enjoyable. We'd love to see them fall on their face. And we can feel some joy and pleasure in that if we've painted them as the enemy. And so I think looking at, and this is where that concept of talking about what people are is also one of the big mind-blowing concepts within NVC that has really shaped my worldview, that anytime we, we must use labels, I mean, labels are incredibly useful and helpful, but they box us in and then they become a way of dehumanizing each other. As soon as we can name or label somebody, we disconnect from what is alive in them, what their needs are, what their values are. And if we can talk about it in this way, like maybe to back off to another debate, which is a little bit in the past that we could uh, look at with some perspective is like the vaccination and the masking debate. And then we can pick a side and then we can say, you're an anti-vaxxer. I'm going to label you. Uh, Or we could say, you are somebody who really values freedom more than safety. And then you can say, you're a, you know, a liberal, blah, blah, blah. You're somebody who values safety a little more than freedom. And so when we can talk about, when we can translate a label into a set of values, now all of a sudden we have a shared language. We both value safety and we both value freedom. And if we can empathize with each other, now we can start to get creative. And now we can start to have a conversation that's most likely to have everyone's needs met. And um, I'm, I'm curious about uh, how, so in this case, when we talk about setting rules and just setting an imperative that okay, because you are lower on the power structure, you automatically get the win. Now it becomes this huge arbitration of, okay, where's the power structure and where's the bottom and where's the the next rung and how do I know when I've graduated and how do I know when I've demoted and who's keeping track of this and who decides? It starts to become very difficult to have a shared understanding of what that is and where those lines are. That's my concern with that in a way. So again, like cooperative communication Mm. it's complicated. Yeah. Very, very, like we're adding so many layers of complexity when we're dealing with cooperative communication. Mm. And one of the things that's happening 
You know, you, you mentioned um, that one of the things we connected on early on was me identifying as a relationship anarchist. And there are like these little like Reddit threads and not little, but like these, these arguments that are going on in the relationship anarchy communities right now, like what constitutes a relationship anarchist versus a relationship libertarian. And this idea like libertarian, we're like, I'm autonomous, I'm independent, you do you, I'm going to do me, we're going to see where that overlaps. And then within the relationship anarchy community, we're in community. Part of what I want is in embedded in what you want and we're actually doing this like how can we be in mutual aid with each other how can we we be co-conspirators with each other and so within that if i'm going to be within community what i want to do is track my power um and this isn't my analogy i, I believe this is a nancy Shanto. i don't know if she got it from somebody else but nancy Shanto, who's the lineage holder for skills for change talks about power being like a dinosaur tail where if we're not aware of the power that we have, we're just swinging this dinosaur tail around and it can be knocking into things, it can be knocking into people. And so we just start to track pieces of power that we can so we don't get rid of the tail. We don't actually leave our power on the table. We still have our power intact. But we're aware as we're moving through life what that dinosaur tail is doing, knowing that even if collective liberation has happened and nobody is under domination or oppression or hierarchy anymore, and we're all collaborating with each other and we're all fully expressed human hearts, we're still going to have differences because we're in different bodies mm-hmm. and we have different needs. So how are we going to navigate our differences that are sometimes going to hurt each other simply because we don't want the same things? Mm-hmm. And so part of me being in loving, committed, cooperative relationships with people is going I know I'm going to hurt you at some point. My power, my wants, my needs, my preferences, it's going to cause you harm. Because if we're in a loving relationship, the level of intimacy that we're sharing means that at some point we're going to have a difference. And my commitment to those people is I'm clear about what my accountability process is. I can hear when I've caused you harm without shame spiraling into thinking I'm a bad person. And I don't, like, you're not going to call me a bad person while I'm still acknowledging, ouch, that was an ouch in that moment. And I care about you enough to hear about the ouch. And maybe I'll be able to do what you want me to do about that ouch. Maybe I won't be able to, maybe I say like, I'm going to keep hurting you. So we might actually need to take more space from each other because this is my preference and this is how I'm going to move through the world. Or I'm not skilled enough yet as I build this skill like, are you willing for me to like keep falling on my face and hurting you while I learn how to do this new thing you're asking me to do? And so again, like there is this empathy and this connection, even when we're noticing the power differential, even when we're claiming harm in some way, that so much of that, like if I've fought all of my internalized depression and I don't think I'm a terrible person every time I hurt somebody, but I can go, oh, I acknowledge the impact of my actions and I can mm. come from self-love and extend love to you. Like we're still coming from that empathetic place. Mm, wow, that's so powerful. And I think that's really rung true to me about the morality, the moral judgment that we lay on ourselves or others, I think is also one of the real root causes of violence. And it has been really shocking. Like once I started to look and to to like listen for that, to see how prevalent it is. And as soon as we say, yes, you have power, you're a bad person, or you're, you know, you're X, Y, and Z, and that's good, or that's bad. Even in the way, you know, we, we praise, like I have a two-year-old daughter, and it's just, you know, she does something, and 
it's so hard not to say good job or you're great and to then say instead oh you picked up all your toys and put them back on the shelf that took a lot of awareness and care and there's no more no moral judgment there's just a description and an expression of my values and to relate to people with the absence of morality it sounds like <laughs> uh a lot of people's worst nightmare who believe that the lack of morality is at the root of all the problems in the world. But then you get back to that question of who's morality. And then you have centuries of violence of people just saying my morality is righter than yours. And, and on it goes from the smallest to the biggest. And so can we interact with each other? And like you said, yes, I hurt you. I'm sorry. I want to, I would like more awareness. Thank you for communicating that with me. Um, I would like to change my actions or I can't stop that because this is something I can't give up. So what are we going to do about it? Okay, then we can talk about that. But to not lay the mantle of morality of good, bad, right and wrong, I think will clear the waters for the healing on so many levels between so many communities. I agree with that. And mm. this is getting out of dualism, right? Good, bad, mm. right, wrong. And so we're not doing that with power either. We're not making power good and we're not making power bad. Mm, mm. We're going, and you know, part of the reason I think people think That's about huge. power, right? That's huge. That's huge. So you, you, we were talking about, we, the last time we talked was four years ago. I am That's tremendously so... more powerful now than I was mm. four years ago. I am going to be tremendously more powerful four years from now. I am not giving my power up. But the power that I'm talking about is a power with, not a power over. And so often we, all of us have experienced power over. And so we associate power as being bad. And mm. we're not even opening ourselves up to the idea of power being something we can do with each other. And all of us mm. being as powerful as possible, as long as we're not doing any harm to each other. Mm. Wow. Well, I'd love to just leave it on that note. That is a very powerful statement. And I really appreciate you bringing your power to the podcast and to sharing this and to alludicate cooperative communication to share and to teach me some of the history and the roots of NBC. I love learning. I love exploring these webs of knowledge. And I'm so excited to see where you are in four years. And I hope that we'll connect and stay in touch in the meantime. So where can people find out more about you, about what you have to offer if they'd like to work with you? Thank you for asking. They can go to be the radical way.com. They can listen to the Mudwater podcast. It's currently called Trends with Benefits. When this podcast comes out, we're shifting it to the Mudwater podcast. So it might be under Trends with Benefits right now. You can find mm -hmm. me on Instagram at be the radical way, and you can book one to one coaching sessions with me either through my website or through my Instagram profile. And I love having conversations with you. I love the questions you ask me. I love the places we go. I have no doubt that you and I are going to have more and more of these conversations moving forward. Oh, I would love that very much. And I will have links to all of Sarah's information on the show notes in the description. So please do check it out. And thank you again, Sarah. And if you would like to be on the NVC podcast, if you'd like to dive into some NVC coaching to hash out things with these tools, please drop a line and I would be happy to have more guests who can share and to bring more of this work into the world. Thank you, everyone. Have a beautiful rest of your day.